<coughs> oh, there's people. Welcome to episode 27, I think. Cayete oh. tu puta! How dare you, thou? How dare thou interrupt us? So, the timing of the last episode that I had last week, which I posted even late, so... It's really strange, the timing. I talked about my dad's first heart attack, not knowing that he was about to have his second one. Just literally a couple days after, my dad had a heart attack. Another one. And it was worse, as far as pain goes. But in other ways, it was better, because we were kind of familiar with it. So when I went and saw him in the hospital, we didn't cry like the first time. This time, it was just more casual and conversational. So it's weird to have it see it, like, be better and worse in certain ways. But really crazy, my dad was just laying in bed with my mom. They were on their phones individually. And my dad just started having pressure in his chest. He thought he could maybe make himself burp. And then it started getting really sharp and really painful. He started sweating like nothing. That's not even a phrase people use. He started sweating like something, some phrase that you'll understand if I compared it correctly. I I wish that words would come to me, you know? I wish that I was better in my descriptive... I can't even think now. I'm so bad at describing things. Anyways, my dad had a heart attack, and he had five stints put into his heart because the stint from the last ten years ago was totally clogged. (sighs) So crazy, dude. And he feels great. He feels like nothing happened. He's at home now. I wonder if his arteries literally went from like fucking like this to like <sighs> like they can take breaths now of blood. At like 5:30 in the morning, I got the text from my sister that dad had gone to the hospital at midnight. Oh, real quick before I get too far into this, I just made and posted a first official trailer of my horror movie Carnal coming out in a week. I just posted that right before filming this, so let's go. Um, so while my dad was in the hospital, this was Friday night, I almost got hit by a drunk driver. I went and saw a comedy show. I was like, oh, I, I, don't, I don't need to perform. I'm just going to go watch the stand-up. So I did. It was a guy who's been in Portlandia. He has a p- big podcast and other freaking stuff. I don't know. I've never actually seen him before. I just They just gave his credentials. But I left that place... I'm driving on a road in in Salem here. I'm going 40, 45, whatever the speed limit is there. And on a side road, a drunk driver, he had to have been, in a black and blue Jeep. He starts going diagonally in in an attempt to stop himself because he has a stoplight. No, he has a stop sign. And he blew that, but he slammed on his brakes to the point where only his back tires were back behind the line. He would have either slammed, T-boned the car in front of me, hit me, or just gone into the brick wall. It was nuts. I I called 911 because he got right behind me. He followed me, and then he turned around. He just made a U-E and went back the other way, and I called the cops. That's my second or third time ever calling 911 at all. It was like a two-minute, two-and-a-half-minute conversation, and I'd I'd be curious to hear the call over because I felt very professional as I was giving her the information, my name, making sure she had my name like two L's, you know, I'm just telling her everything she needed to know and it was kind of crazy, but man, I, once that, once I saw that driver, I was like, of course, I am driving on a Friday night and Fridays and Saturdays are really scary driving in the city. Too many stories. Luckily, nothing was worse with my dad's case and luckily I didn't get hit by the drunk driver. This weekend could have been so devastating to my family. I would like to think that if my dad had passed, I wouldn't have gone to the comedy show, therefore not almost getting hit by the drunk driver. Although, something else could have happened. Thank the Lord for his protection. Holy cow. So, a fictional character that I've never really done a deep dive into, but I've always been curious about, is Dr. Hannibal Lecter. 
I think there's four books about him, all written by the, the author Thomas Harris, or Tommy Hari, in probably a couple languages. <laughs> there are several movies and a great TV show about Don, Doc, oh, 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 Dr. Hannibal Lecter. He reminds me of a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but he makes it happen. He's hiding from people. It's not like, it's very cold and calculated. That's what it is. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde has things that trigger him, or it just happens randomly and unpredictably. At least, like, even Bruce Banner or David Banner turning into the Hulk knows when it's going to happen. But Hannibal Lecter, I remember really wanting to see Silence of the Lambs when I was turning, like, 16, 17. And my dad wouldn't let me for a while because he saw it in his 20s in the theater. And it was very disturbing to him. But the thing is, this was in the 2010s that I wanted to watch it. And so I finally got to watch it. I think on my 18th birthday. <laughs> and the violence that happens in it is so cheesy. And most of it is kept off screen. I was like, what are you talking about? It's really not that disturbing. It's kind of goofy. I think it would have been made a lot more gory and disturbing today if it was made today. Kind of like the show, but I'll get into that in a little bit. Dr. Hannibal Lecter is a psychiatrist who was alive during the World War II. And the last book written by Thomas Harris about Hannibal Lecter is called Hannibal Rising. And it's about Hannibal during World War II becoming Hannibal and the events that took place that turned him into Hannibal Lecter. So I just started reading Silence of the Lambs. I have never gotten into any of these books before. And so the first person to play him was in 1986, a movie directed by Michael Mann. First person to play Dr. Hannibal Lecter was Brian Cox who is now the, the patriarchy in the show Succession, if you know that show. So back when Brian Cox was in his 30s, he played Hannibal Lecter, and I just watched this movie yesterday for the first time, Manhunter. There are three cast members in this movie that I think are great, but were miscast. I think they should have rotated. I think Brian Cox should have played the reporter. The reporter should have played the Red Dragon, and the Red Dragon actor, Tom Noonan, he should have played Hannibal Lecter. That's just my opinion. I think the casting director got it all wrong. And it's a gorgeous movie. It's visually stunning so um, well. See, I describe things welly. <laughs> what if that was a word? Yeah, he does pretty welly at that. Anthony Hopkins, Sir Anthony Hopkins, was the next guy to play Hannibal Lecter. And he makes some amazing choices as the character. Like that. And he chose never to blink. He just always wanted to appear like a reptile and just stare at his victims and talk to them like this and never blink. Clarice. You know, super fun to watch. I was just watching his performance yesterday, too, in Red Dragon. Uh, Hannibal Rising. Plus, I just went through the show for the first time. Mad Mickelson. If you don't know him, he played the first James Bond villain in the Daniel Craig series with the eye. Le Chiffre. He played him. And he, he does an incredible job, too. And it's definitely not like Anthony Hopkins. He takes some things from Sir Hopkins. Mad Mickelson was 45 when he played Hannibal. And Sir Anthony Hopkins was 56 in Silence of the Lambs. And he played Hannibal a couple, like 10 years after that. So Mad Mickelson got to do a lot more being a younger Hannibal. There's fight scenes that, that Sir Anthony Hopkins never would have been able to do. Or Brian Cox, for that matter, even being in his 30s when he played him. And I love the series. 
When I first watched it before film school, I was very critical of a lot of it, but it was ignorantly so. Now, after film school, I know a lot more about film and storytelling, and I can appreciate the style that they go for, because it's so stylized. I can appreciate it a lot more. But if you don't know, young Hannibal Lecter was forced into a situation where he had to he had to eat another human being. So it was kind of forced cannibalism, which is what Hannibal Lecter also then does to other people. He cooks these incredible, elaborate meals, has people over with these dinner parties, but they don't know that it's human. And that's where it becomes super disturbing, is Hannibal selects his victims based on, like, oh, their cheek, you know, or how good they're going to taste. Or he'll, like, feed them a bunch of actual, like, nuts and herbs and stuff to make them taste better. (laughs) But there is so much lore around Dr. Hannibal Lecter. And like I said, I'm very new to the books, but I can tell... Based on each movie and rendition of the character, plus the series, there's so much in each of them that's the same. Which tells me it had to have been straight from the book. Like, they have direct quotes, and a lot of the names are the same, so if you're familiar with the lore, you'll know what I'm talking about. But if you're not, you're not, you're, you want... But the themes that they're suggesting, or the questions that, that they're proposing to the audience through these... Through the whole Hannibal series... It's really interesting because each serial killer in this show, or or the movies, the series, each of them has a soft side that's very neglected by most everybody and was probably a result of something from their past. Very, very similar themes uh, explored in Dahmer, too. That series that just came out, like, what point is it no longer the parent's responsibility in the mental health and the physical health of their child? At what point do they pass on the baton and go, okay, now your health is in your hands? This whole topic, themes, questions explored, really tends to hit home with me. So I'm very intrigued by people like Dahmer, by people by uh, like D- Dr. What? Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Because one is reality, one was a real person, and one is fiction. But art imitates life. I would be curious to hear if anybody has gone further and read the books, even multiple times, or in what they think of the movies. How close of a connection do they have, and in which rendition of Dr. Hannibal Lecter is your favorite? For me, it's Sir Anthony Hopkins and then Mad Mickelson right, right underneath that. And sadly, the guy who played young Hannibal Lecter in Hannibal Rising, he passed away uh, earlier this year at at the age of 37. And that hit me only halfway through watching that movie. I was like, oh my gosh, I think this guy's dead. So sad, but he was an incredible Hannibal as well. So, on to the next topic. We're going to get a little personal here with some stories that are not publicly known or known by many people in my circle either. But, like, I definitely have some drinking stories and some... And some partying days. <laughs> so maybe as this podcast goes along, I'll open up a little bit more and share some of these stories because I could I could write a book. So uh, my first time ever doing mushrooms. I had heard about mushrooms and was like, I think that's a step up from weed and it might be uh, quite a bit different. I have told the story of when I first did weed for the first time. I told that on a podcast uh, quite a few episodes ago, probably, before I did the whole switch up here. But uh, mushrooms, I really wanted to try, and I've never told this story. So I bought, uh, the dude's name was Hunter. I had just gotten to film school, just got there. And this dude, 
I, w- I started hanging out with, he was growing mushrooms. He was like, yeah, I, I've done this uh, only a few times before. But he showed me everything that he had to buy. But he showed me everything that he had to buy. And I was like, really? I mean, you literally have to grow it in manure or something similar. I don't know the process that he had. And then after several weeks, he had all these long stems. <laughs> so I bought one off of him. And I'm, I'm not joking. It was about this long and probably this thick. And it had a huge mushroom cap at the end. And it was all wet. Like, I didn't take it home and let it dry because you're supposed to let these dry out. But I cut it in half when I got home. Saved the end with the cap because I didn't know that the cap is, like, one of the strongest parts. But I was like, okay, well, none of the roommates are home, so I'll just make a sandwich for myself and mix this with it. And it was gross. The taste is absolutely disgusting. It's like eating absolute dirt. And I don't remember feeling a whole lot. Like, I was kind of waiting around, like, I, I mean, maybe something's happening, but I'm not sure. Then the next night, I I was also very new to smoking weed, and so I I decided to include uh, a bowl. I ate the second half, which was probably longer, and had the cap, put it in a sandwich, ate it, and then right about the 30-minute mark after ingesting, I smoked a bowl. And a bowl alone would have been a lot for me at that point, because I was very new to smoking. But what happened was I got so stoned from the bowl that it just enhanced the crap out of what was going on with the mushrooms. I spent six hours in a room this size, panicking, stressing. It was the most non-glamorous experience you could have asked for. I couldn't listen to music. I was trying to watch, I don't know why I picked The Office, because the humor is so awkward and stressful that it was just stressing me out. I was like, Michael, why are you doing this? And it was all wrong. Like, I, w- I, was, I would try to listen to music and close my eyes. And stuff would just start running at me. And it was just, I, w- I was panicking. I went out and tried to make a sandwich. I went out and tried to make a sandwich like three hours into this thing. And my hands just looked like goofy hands. I mean, they were massive. And I had to like make my sandwich looking up at the ceiling because <laughs> I was too scared that that my hands were just going to freak me out. But that was such a horrible experience. <laughs> I would do not recommend. I have had much better times since then with the same drug. I do think that there is a time and place. I think there's a lot of healing benefits when it comes to mushrooms. I do find them natural. I love that they're becoming decriminalized and being experimented with on PTSD for veterans. I I think that is an incredible um, uh, venture and investment for the government to be having. When it comes to recreational, however, you have to be so careful because, dude, it is potent. I mean, it's literally food poisoning. You're eating a mushroom and it's food poisoning your body. A lot of people vomit. I've totally vomited from this drug. So I, I'm really not saying this with, like, gloss and glam, like, go try it out. Um, this is more of a warning than anything. <sighs> and then, uh, drinking story, when I was, this was my second year of school, I get a call one night from my friends. Joe and Dylan, I can tell they've been partying. I can just tell on the phone. Three minutes later, they must have been real close to my house. Three minutes later, they pull up in front of my apartment, throw open the door, and are blaring music. I mean, the music is echoing down the street. It's so loud. My friend Joe, who was driving, should not have been driving. He's like jamming out to the music that's blaring. And they want to party with me. And at this point, I'm only 20. I can't party with them. I I can't go anywhere. I can't buy alcohol. 
or going to a bar. But they're like, oh, come on, let's go. And and these these two were in a state where they were not going to take no for an answer. So we end up going down the street and going into a bar. The way that they ordered it was they had me sit with Joe or Dylan. I, I think it was me and Dylan sat at a table. Joe went and ordered a pitcher of beer and then brought it to the table. And that's how we drank. So I was 20, and the bartenders, we later sat at the bar and were talking to the bartenders, and they were already serving me by that point, so they just figured I was 21. But because my friends had already been partying before that, this was me just starting the night. So this put them over the edge. My friend Joe just walks outside and just starts vomiting all over the sidewalk. I have to take them home separately. I have to take them down the street, cross the street, up into my apartment. I have to do that with Joe, come back and get Dylan, because they're so sloshed. I take Joe up, I put him on the couch, then I go and get Dylan. Dylan starts laying in the street, sitting in the street. He won't get up, he won't follow me back home. He's yelling at cars as they pass by. He's belligerent. I take him up to, I don't know how I got him up to my uh, apartment, because we lived, like, upstairs, quite a few stairs. Um, He goes over and tries to wake Joe up. Joe's totally passed out. I go, Dylan, get off of him. Stop. And I I set a bed for Dylan. I woke up after most people, yeah, they had already woken up and left. But I guess how my roommates found Joe and Dylan was Dylan, Dylan ended up right in front of my roommate's bedroom door just like my roommate had to open the door and step over dylan <laughs> and they ended up uh leaving that morning before i could catch them but man i mean yeah that's that's kind of a crazy story where i definitely had to babysit the two of them that was really not fun and as far as i know those two kind of continue to make that a lifestyle which um i think has allowed for me to add some distance from them into my life so that that has been good for me Um, In film school, though, I had quite a few different professors, and I wanted to talk about a few of five of them. I'm not going to talk about my acting instructors, except for one of them. You guys need to hear about him. But the first instructor that I'm going to mention is Phil Warfel, who was my film history teacher. We had his class for the first time. I saw a picture of him at orientation, and he looked like a lovey-dovey, goofy guy. And then... I met him, and the way he, like, introduced himself to us, he demanded such attention and respect that I immediately went, Who the frick are you? I mean, that's the attitude that I met him with. And his class was by far the hardest. We had to do essays every week, film reviews, watch these old three-hour-long silent films. It was nuts. But... This guy, Phil Warfel, taught me so much about film history, storytelling. This guy opened doors for me that I've just continued to walk through new doors that are opened. I wrote this guy a massive letter at the end of my year with him saying, You are the best teacher I have ever had in my life. This guy, Phil, sent it to his dad. He sent it to his mom and his girlfriend. He was like, Look at what this student wrote me. And I I think that's incredible. Um, I revere Phil's opinion, and I love him so much. He will always be credited as the person that got me into film. The, he pointed me in directions that I will forever ever be walking down that path, man. 
Next, I'm going to talk about uh, Joshua Cortade. Now, Joshua, if you're listening to this, plug your ears. I'm so sorry, because I'm going to be throwing you under the bus a little bit. Cortade, Josh, you can find his stuff on Amazon Prime. He has a couple movies, short films, and a TV show on Amazon Prime. Joshua Cortade, if you want to look him up, because you might need to see this for yourself. Joshua was my directing teacher, uh, screenwriting teacher, um, maybe a producer's, I think a producer's class. (laughs) And he made his own films on the side. Never asked for my help for any of them, and he gave me low grades. (laughs) So (laughs) I don't feel bad trashing his films a little bit here because... Dude, honestly, that's what they are. Check this out. Joshua is in his later 30s. I think 39. Maybe 37. He's been single the whole eight years, nine years that I've known him. But every one of his movies has a drop-dead gorgeous chick as his girlfriend. She's not just dating somebody in the movie. She is his girlfriend. And usually just a, a bombshell of an actress. That's funny. Not only that, the actress will very often have some shirtless, in a bra, underwear type scene with him in a bed. That happens in most of his movies. Some sort of kiss or dating implication or straight out in bed scene with, with one of these actresses. This was a hot topic in our school because the amount of self-reporting that Joshua's doing by writing his own fantasies into his movies and the lack of self-awareness that he's doing that, it's very blatant. In a lot of ways, I'm going to be honest, Joshua Cortade was an example of what not to do and what not to be as a filmmaker in more ways than not and as a teacher. Honestly, I would never teach how he teaches I would never make movies like he makes movies. He was an example for what not to do. And that's a bummer because I would have expected my film school teacher to be an example for how to make movies. Is that not what I pay for? Because I think it's what I pay for. I'm going to talk about uh, Les Rabel. Les Rabel was a failed stand-up comedian who did stand-up for like seven years with Tim Allen and Bob Saget in Detroit, Michigan coming up. (laughs) He gave it up after seven years. I'm not sure why. Uh, He became like a television producer where he's just behind the camera. And then he became a teacher. And by the time he got to my film school at, uh, you know, I think his mid-60s, he was um, divorced for the third time and really did not have much to show for his career at this point. And he got fired from my school for being a dirtbag. So um, I, you know, I have their moments where I, I made less laugh or he made me laugh, but it was very surface level. I actually, I for the most part, I had a lot of contempt in my heart for Les Rabel. Uh, and I wanted him gone from that school a lot sooner than he ended up leaving so pretty quickly I I realized the turnaround of employees at this school was was pretty consistent the teachers would come in and leave very fast in two years I had three different acting teachers who had to come in and you had to relearn how to become comfortable and vulnerable with this teacher you have to familiarize yourself with this new person who is going to be in close quarters, in intimate 
intimate settings and scenes with you. It's it's not just the easiest thing to just be like, here, meet this person, act with them now. So one thing that one thing that Les Rabel had going for him was the first class that I had with him. I don't remember what it was called, but it was just like a speech class. We had to write one-page speeches, give them up, uh, get, get up and give them. And there was a lot of freedom with that. I would turn my one-page speeches into a comedy routine and just do stand-up in front of the 30 people I had in that class. There was one time I went up there and ended my speech by doing this to Les, and he was a dirtbag, so he I knew he would love it. But I said something, and then I went like this. And he started laughing, he's like, A+. Plus. And I was like, yeah, I thought so. <laughs> Like, he, he, every joke he made was so crude and crass, and if any, I mean, he would have been gone if any of the higher-ups would have heard the way that he talks to people on set. He was so crude. And constantly making jokes. The dude was, he was seriously like a 10-year-old in a 65-year-old's body. He was, he was rough to be around. My liking of him was a roller coaster. Jerry Isinger, that son of a bitch, he left, he he would have been a new Phil Warfel to me had he stuck around, but he took a better job within the first semester, I mean, he, he must have realized this school is not worth it and just dipped out, but he was a great teacher, he gave me great advice, he's the one who told me to pursue uh, Brazil social media and keep Portuguese and keep the Brazil fandom with me. So I, I owe that idea to Jerry Isinger uh, and the success that I've had with my Brazilian accounts on TikTok and, and Instagram and all that. So Jerry was an amazing screenwriter. He, he taught the screenwriting class, but he was also a great actor. He has, he, you can actually find Jerry Isinger on IMDb and he's done quite a bit. But he was so funny. He would often play music during his class and he'd get so distracted by like the music playing that he'd just start... Bobbin, he'd be like, "Yeah, um, turn to page thirty-four, uh, and then we're," <laughs> and it would make me die laughing every time because I'm ADD too, so I could like stay with him. Now, I'm gonna end this podcast talking about Gary Bosek. <laughs> Gary Bosek has an IMDb too. You're more than welcome to look him up. So this guy is completely bald and wears a hairpiece. And this was a huge theory in my school because people only thought maybe. Because we're like, Gary's hair never grows. He never cuts it. It never grows. And there's a, there's a piece where it just looks like it's pointing down. Kind of like Harry Styles. And there is a movie called Ape, directed by Joel Petrakis. And Gary is completely bald in that movie. So we had a theory that he might completely be bald. And I think he is. Also, he wears a bunch of different wigs in his movies. Gary Bosek on YouTube. D- don't even, don't even look up his his IMDb. Look him up on YouTube. Oh my gosh, I forgot about his YouTube. Oh my gosh. Okay, Gary Bosek on YouTube. So this guy is so unself-aware. Such a bad actor and improviser. He thinks he can do characters and accents and voices. And he thinks he's handsome. (laughs) But he is not. He had one of the more like, oh, ooh kind of faces that I, especially when he's performing comedy. It's like, oh man, stop. 
But this dude was on set with me one time, and I don't know why he felt the need to do this. He walked up with me with in his phone, in his hand, and he goes, uh, Hey, Colin, you want to go in, in that room over there and, and do some improv? And I went, I, I, No, they need me on set really quick. Bye. I thought, I tried thinking of every excuse not to go in a room alone with him with a phone and, like, do something. It was weird. So Gary ended up leaving and going to Florida for some other filming job at a high school. That's interesting to me. He was like, oh, college minds, I can't meld. High schoolers are easier. So Gary Bosek, he um, was leaving, and this we were having our final class with him. He decided to show us a new YouTube video of his. Oh, yay. So we're watching this YouTube video. He's sitting up front with the computer, and I'm behind him. This really stupid part happens. The screen goes to black right as I roll my eye. I look back, and I, I meet eyes with him on the screen, and then the movie comes back and plays another scene. <laughs> so, so right as it goes black, I go, oh. Gosh, and then I meet eyes with him, and then the movie comes back. I walked out. I walked out of the class right there. I never said goodbye to him. That was our last class. Last time I saw him was that incredibly awkward moment where he saw my blatant disapproval of the video that he, we were watching. That's it. We, I, I was like, I'm done. <laughs> That's it. Good riddance, scary Bosick. Get out of my, get out of my school. But please, please go watch his videos. Uh, he had no business teaching me any sort of acting. But thank you guys for being here with me today. This was a fun episode to come up with. I'm sorry if I'm trashing people. Sorry to my teachers, but you guys should have done better, honestly. And been you should have been a Phil. Be like Phil. All right. Bye, guys. Much love.